Welcome back to A Little Faith. I'm here with Duncan Kenzie. Duncan is one of the directors on the WCF board. Uh, Duncan and I are going to talk about the Israel-Hamas conflict and how we as Christophians should feel about it. How are you doing today, Duncan? Good. How are you, Levi? Pretty good. Mm -hmm. I guess something I wanted to say off the top is kind of, um, I'm very aware in this topic, I think, well, I think it's funny hosting a podcast and generally acting like I, d- I am an authority in a lot of things in my life that I'm not. Um, I, d- I do think it's worth at least me stating how much I'm not an authority in geopolitical machinations. Um, but I do think this is so interesting. How, what do you think about what, what what's your uh, biography if you were to um, how much of an expert are you or are you not? Oh, well, I would agree with you that it, it, it's hard to define oneself as an, an expert on this topic, but I'm sort of a uh, a news addict and junkie, and I have been for a long time, and especially when things flare up in the Middle East. Uh, I, I think when I really started getting engaged in this was back in 2006 when there was a war between or a a mini war as most of these things are between Israel and Hezbollah and I followed that and that was really the first time that Israel experienced it wasn't it was called a truce but it was actually a strategic defeat Mm -hmm. and I think we started to see at that point in time, the decline of Israel's strength as as a military force and presence. But I also, so that, let's get back to the term geopolitics. And okay. uh, this is one of the topics that, in conjunction with Bible prophecy and events going on in the Middle East, that I do try to study quite a bit. And the word geopolitics means geography plus politics. So it is really about how does the geography of a particular place shape the political and military uh, outcomes of particular states or Mm -hmm. places. So for, and I subscribe to a paid newsletter that is, tries to be politically neutral and just give objective analysis of the information. And it's called Geopolitical Futures. It used to be called Stratfor, uh, but it's run by a guy named George Friedman, who's a renowned student of geopolitics he's a brilliant guy he he lives down in texas i actually ran into him one day in the airport in in uh, houston and said hey george and he looks at me like who the heck he (laughs) and of course it's because i was a subscriber to his newsletter and so they do this objective analysis of what's going on in different parts of the world and place it in the context of the geography of the world. So, for example, if you take the situation in Ukraine and Russia, uh-huh. one of the reasons why Russia feels so incredibly threatened is because the geography 
is such that it's very easy for an invading force to go into Russia. Um, there's just flat land between Ukraine and Russia and okay. between a lot of those areas. And so when you put that in the context of the Middle East and you look at geopolitics in the Middle East, what you have is at the turn of the 20th century, there were two uh, bureaucrats named Sykes and Pico. Uh -huh. who, um, Sykes was English, Pico was French. And after uh, World War One, they they sat down and they drew up all these imaginary lines of where all these countries should be. And just said, okay, let's put Syria here, let's put Saudi Arabia here, let's put Iraq here. All these different lines. And um, these were just completely arbitrary and artificial. And so you end up with different tribes, different ethnicities bound in these countries together uh, that were artificially constructed and with different um, geographical effects. So that's one reason why you have the Kurds, which have been terribly persecuted, and the Americans have supported the Kurds. They're persecuted by the Syrians, the um, Iraqis, and by um, the Turks. Um, so uh, also at that particular time at the turn of the 20th century, at uh, the end of World War One, you had the Balfour Declaration. And this was where England came out and said, we are going to give this land to Israel, their, their historical land. We're going to give it to the Jews. And the Jews were still in exile at that time. They were still in Europe. Uh, scattered throughout the world in exile, but they said this is going to be a Jewish homeland. And that was one of the outcomes of World War One. was Britain, which at that time was still a powerful force, made that pledge. Right. But they also said, but by the way, it's still going to be a home for the Arabs. So the Balfour Declaration, rather than solving the problem, just created a problem or kicked the can down the road. So then we get to 1948, and Israel is uh, officially declared to be a nation at the United Nations. And all five members of the UN Security Council at that particular time said yes to Israel being a nation. That includes U.S., China, Russia, France, and the U.K. And nowadays, you, you could not possibly get that level of consensus between mm -hmm. Security Council. For example, just two days ago, we had the U.S. propose a pause in hostilities uh, for humanitarian aid um, at the U.N. Security Council. And Russia said no, uh, and China said no, and put forward a proposal that said, we want a ceasefire. And of course, the U.S. and Israel is against a ceasefire because it would create an opportunity for Hamas to regather its strength and continue attacking Israel. Right. So from a, a geopolitical position, what happened when Israel was created as a state in 1948, the first thing that happened was there was a war. The Arabs went to war against Israel, and um, total shock and awe type approach to war. But is the Israelis won. And they kicked out a lot of the Palestinians, or, or a lot of the people have been living in that land at that particular time. And that is referred to by the Palestinians as the great Nakba, the great um, tragedy or, or uh, 
Uh, there's another term they use for it anyway. The Arab word is Nakba. And so now what is happening is, so then what happened is the Palestinians were segregated essentially into two different enclaves within Israel, within the land of Israel, the greater land of Palestine, as, as we used to call it. And that's the West Bank, which is the west side of the Jordan River, which divides Israel from uh, Jordan, which is an area which is um, how many thousands of miles did we say that area was? Uh, You're talking about the Gaza Strip? No, the West Bank. The West uh, Bank is 2,000 square miles. Okay. okay. And if you look at a map of it, um, you know, Wikipedia, it sticks right out into the middle of land, like Bethlehem um, is in the West Bank. A lot of these places, these biblical places um, that we think of in association with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and uh, they are all in the West Bank. The area where uh, Jesus went and met the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, that's a Palestinian town now. Uh, so there's the West Bank, and then there's the Gaza Strip, which is where the fighting is taking place today, and where the attack from uh, the attack was launched against Israel on October seventh. And so it's worth it's worth pointing out for for you you basically just said it, but the Gaza Strip was formed in in, in that in that war in 1948. That's when it was first kind of formed. Yeah, that's where people kind of went to and, and were pushed to. And then that became the, the uh, place where the Palestinians were essentially confined. A lot of the Palestinians were confined. So when there's conversations about, you know, uh, a two-state solution, where there's one state for the Palestinians and there's one state for Israel, the problem is, is how do you create that Palestinian state when it's separated by, I think, about 50 miles? The Gaza Strip is separated from the West Bank. And, it's, and in between, it's all land that Israel occupies today, is in today. Okay. Yeah, so 70, <clears throat> 72 miles between the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, yeah. So they want to have a state there. And, the, and so the idea is that they would build some kind of road or connector between the two and somehow have dividing lines on either side to prevent people from just crossing between Israel and um, that Palestinian state that they would form. Yeah. So the two state solution has always, to me, been um, highly, highly impractical, if nothing else. And you mean just kind of geographically, back to the geopolitical point? Yes. Yeah. And it's that's, hard to imagine. That's, the geo <laughs> that's where the geography of a place comes into uh, to impact the political outcome of uh, a, a state's arc in history. Let's do some more kind of table setting. So uh, we the, the, the actual size of the Gaza Strip, I saw the Wall Street Journal compared it to the size of greater Chicago. It's only 140 square miles. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really 
very much not large. There's a population, you and I were looking up before, there's a population of either two and a half or three million people in that area. Um, remember, and as you already said, October 7th was the day, uh, so that's 20 days ago, that uh, the, the attack happened. Um, I think it's worth noting that it was, it was the day after the end of Sukkot or the, or the Feast of Booths. So it was immediately after one of the high, one of the holy, uh, festival weeks. Um, yeah. And it was also f- almost 50 years to the day since the start of the young Kippur yeah. war. I also think it's yeah. worth noting. I mean, we, maybe talk about this later, but it was two days after the United States Congress, uh, vacated Kevin McCarthy, meaning that, and that, has just changed as of yesterday. We're recording this uh, Friday, October 27th, but it took three whole weeks for the U S Congress to replace the speaker of the house, which means that they can actually pass aid. But for, I think it was fascinating geopolitically for the last three weeks that the U S was literally unable to, uh, to send any aid to um, Israel or the Gaza Strip. Well, I, I think uh, that's a possible factor, but I, I think the more, uh, from my perspective anyway, of looking at this, and again, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert. I, mean, I don't think I ever answered that question, but I would <laughs> put myself in the same shoes as you, as I'm not ex- an expert, I'm just curious. Uh, but one of the things that was going on, has been going on, is... The Abraham Accords, which were initiated by the Trump administration, um, brought about peace uh, between three Arab countries. I think one of them was the United Arab Emirates and a couple of other countries uh, and Israel. So this was something that was unheard of. You know, Trump, Trump's administration had two great accomplishments in favor of Israel. One, they moved the embassy, the U.S. embassy, to Jerusalem. It had been talked about and promised by the various U.S. administrations for about 20 years, but never happened. And then Trump said, we're doing it. So he did it. Um, And I'm not here to argue the merits or the demerits of of Trump, um, but just this is just a fact of what he did. Uh, the, The next thing they did is they put into motion the Abraham Accords and, and achieved, and it's interesting, they're named Abraham Accords mm-hmm. uh, in recognition of the common father that both the Arab nations and the uh, Jewish nation have uh, the common roots. And so there was peace between them. So the next thing that was happening just before Hamas um, in engaged in these terrible atrocities against Israel was there was a peace plan between Saudi Arabia and Israel that was underway. And it was very likely that there was going to be um, peace between the two of them. There had already been sort of an informal peace or truce, but they were going to formalize it. And that would have been devastating to Iran if that had happened because Iran and Saudi Arabia are the two biggest rivals in the Middle East. And the reason uh, 
one of the reasons, at any rate, that they're rivals is not just because of they're competing for the world's wealth in terms of selling oil, but it's also because they are two separate branches of the uh, the Muslim faith. So the Iranians are uh, members of the Shiite faith. Mm-hmm. And the Saudi Arabians are Sunnis. And so what you get is this serious uh, conflict between these two branches of the Muslim faith that creates this, uh, this animosity and this global competition between these two powers. And so if Saudi Arabia had achieved peace with Israel... Iran considers Israel to be its greatest enemy and its greatest threat because Israel has an undeclared nuclear arsenal that they could launch at Iran. And that's one of the reasons Iran has been trying to get nuclear weapons. Uh, Then Iran's very existence is a threat. And so Iran drives all these proxy organizations like Hezbollah, and the uh, Palestinian uh, jihad and Hamas to attack Israel. They provide the funding, they provide the logistics, they provide the training. In fact, the Wall Street Journal reported five days after the invasion in, on October 7th that um, Hamas had gone to they had gone to Iran for training by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, mm-hmm. and that Iran had specifically given the green light for this invasion to happen. Now, Hamas claims that they had been planning it for two years, and I think they probably had been planning it for two years. But the launch of the attack was not a coincidence with the fact that uh, the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia were about to enter into a rapprochement that would have completely transformed the landscape in the Middle East. And now that's that's in some doubt because um, MBS, the the leader of um, Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of um, well, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince, the same guy who had the Washington Post reporter cut up in pieces and put in a suitcase. Uh, years ago, uh, he um, after he was the one who was driving the uh, agreement with Netanyahu's government, and uh, but after this happened, rather than blatantly or directly come out and condemn Hamas's atrocities, he criticized Israel for their you know disproportionate response to this and the bombing of innocent children uh, as he sees it in the Gaza Strip. So the move by Hamas was successful in killing that effort to to bring about that agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, at least for now. Yeah, for now, right. Um. So since since then, the numbers I just looked up is there's more than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel. That's including children and elderly. Um, they think there's 600 captives. Sorry, 203 people 
I, last number I heard was 229. Okay, 203 people uh, captured. Uh, the 600 I was mistaken is an estimate by the State Department about how many Americans are currently in Gaza, um, American citizens. Then, so 400 people killed in Israel, and then 45 people, sorry, 3,400 people have been killed in Gaza so far. 12,000 have been injured. That's, that's yeah, I think that I think the claim by, by the Hamas authorities now is 7,000 people have been killed in Gaza. Yeah, so... And, and um, you have to remember those numbers are reported by the Hamas-run hospital authority, although the World Health Organization thinks those numbers are pretty credible. And where it stands now is the Israel is amassing tanks and army and stuff like that on the northern border of Gaza. Um, and essentially, in my reading of it, under pressure from the U.S. and the rest of the world have not entered into Gaza in an actual ground assault yet. Um, they're kind of negotiating and trying to get hostages freed and things like that. Um, I think we could go a couple places from here, um, but that's, I think, what else do you think needs to be said about what the current status is right now of the Israel Israeli-Gaza conflict? Well, the first thing to say is that it's extremely it's extremely tragic right the whole circumstances you know let, let's just talk about the Palestinians first and then and then we'll talk about the Israelis so the Palestinians have essentially um, been living in that enclave in Gaza, which interestingly is where the Philistines were based in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. If you look at the six cities of the Philistines, like Gaza and Ashkelon and so on, uh, Ashkelon is currently in uh, the land of Israel, but back in the Old Testament, uh, that was the region where the Philistines came from. Right. So the, the Palestinians have been living in this prison, essentially, for uh, almost, well, 70, 75 years, since 1948. Now, I'm not, when I say that, I'm not criticizing any particular party to this, because I think there's lots of parties that are to blame. And uh, Hamas is probably the, well, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority are probably as much to blame as Israel for this situation. Uh, because Hamas is a terrorist organization that is, it's in its charter to destroy Israel. Their, their whole intent is to destroy Israel. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, people chant, free Palestine, but the Palestinians could have been freed if they carried through with the agreements that had been made back in 1994 with Clinton, and if they had taken the opportunities that had been offered them by the, by the Israelis to make peace, but they didn't. And that wasn't just Hamas, that was the Palestinian Authority that did that as well. Hamas, the, pe the people living in this enclave are prisoners of 
all these different forces. They're prisoners of um, Israeli right-wing pressure. They're prisoners of Egypt refusing to take them into their country. They're prisoners of the rest of the Arab world that really don't want anything to do with the Palestinians other than keep it there as a thorn in the side of Israel rather than actually resolve the conflict. And they're prisoners of Hamas's um, dictatorial rule. Hamas takes money that is provided as humanitarian aid and they use it to produce uh, military weapons or build tunnels to attack Israel. So the situation in Gaza is a desperate one. It has been for a long time. And now with the siege that Israel is imposing upon it by refusing to allow fuel trucks in, uh, uh, basically constricting the flow of goods into that region, it's a humanitarian disaster by every stretch of the imagination. So that's, that's the plight of the Palestinians. Lots of children have been killed. Lots of women have been killed. Uh, whether it's because they couldn't flee or whether it was errant bombs, uh, whether it was direct targeting, who knows? This is the problem with war. Right. Was that women and children and non-combatants get killed as well as combatants. And it's, it's a great, great tragedy for the Palestinian, uh, the people living there. Now on the Israeli side, um, this was, this has been described by a lot of Israelis as their 9 11. All right. Now, if you want to compare it to 9 11, I believe the number of people killed in the Twin Towers attacks was roughly 2,700 people. And there were a lot of conversations afterwards about. People saying, I knew somebody who knew somebody who was in the tower, towers at the time they came down. So there was a lot of zeitgeist around that event. And I think people in the U.S. and to some extent in Canada as well felt that a strong connection with what had happened. Well, in Israel, you had 1,400 people slaughtered. And um, two, uh, last count, 229 hostages taken. 1,400 people out of the population of Israel compared to the, I think, I forget what the population of Israel is. Uh, I think it might be nine, mis- nine million. That's the number that jumps to my head. I'm going to look it up right now. Nine, yeah, nine million, 9.4. It's nine. 9 million, 1,400 out of 9 million versus 2,700 out of 300 million. So in terms of just sheer number, a percentage of people who were killed, and in Israel, as you probably can imagine, families are very strongly connected with one another. And there's a lot of dual citizenship. There's a lot of Russians Russian Jews in Israel. There's a lot of American Jews in Israel. So these ties go, they span a lot of international um, borders. 
And the atrocities that were committed are so vile that a lot of newspapers refuse to show the pictures or the videos of what had happened. Um, my son, he, he, made, he told me he made the mistake of going on Telegram mm. the day uh, the events were happening. Um, was on the Hamas channel and saw some really explicit videos of what was being done to people. Oof. And he wouldn't tell me what was being done. He said, Dad, don't go there. It's the worst thing I've ever, mistake I've ever made going and looking at these videos because the atrocities is worse than what's been described as going on in Russia and Ukraine. And the Israelis in particular, they have a culture of life. They have a culture of valuing life. And so any desecration to bodies, any torture, any maiming, any of that kind of thing uh, is just <coughs> completely abhorrent to their whole way of thinking. Whereas Hamas at least, and I think a lot of the Arab nations have a culture of death. Because they celebrate martyrdom. Uh, something that as Christians, we do not celebrate martyrdom. Right. It, it might have been celebrated at one time in the past. Um, but we don't urge people to be martyrs. To We believe that following Christ involves laying down your life in the way you live, not in the way you die. That Jesus has already died for us, and we don't we don't need martyrs in that sense. Um, so there's a completely different way of thinking in at least the extreme form of the Muslim faith. It, it, it you know it's Islamists versus maybe moderate Islam. So anyway, the the situation in Israel, it's their nine eleven, and everybody in Israel is pretty united now and their desire to completely annihilate Hamas of whatever cost, whatever price. And that price may come, uh, uh, and the result, that price that they pay might come in the form of rejection by Western governments that have typically supported them. So we've already seen a shift in the Biden administration's tone. Right. Their initial tone was giving free reign to Israel to do whatever they wanted to destroy Hamas. Biden initially refused to say things like, but they need to um, protect the civilians in, in Gaza. Now that tone has changed, and there's very much an emphasis on the response has to be within the boundaries of um, international law regarding warfare. You can't target children and women and children. They have to be careful of, of who they, you know, how they are doing this. So within a period of two weeks, the narrative has shifted back to the way it has always been, which is the Western nations turn essentially against Israel and ignore their plight and say, um, we want to place these constraints upon you. And those constraints are completely 
unrealistic in terms of the goals of trying to get rid of Hamas. Getting rid of Hamas is going to be an extremely painful process for Israel. Their pain has only just begun because they are likely to lose many, many lives of soldiers going into Gaza and engaging in urban warfare and tunnel warfare with uh, Hamas. Hamas is heavily armed. They're heavily fortified. These tunnels are 500 kilometers. There's 500 kilometers tunnels. There's like way more tunnels than there are in the London Underground, for example. Uh, whenever you engage in urban street fighting, it comes with great cost because defenders can hide behind rubble. They can hide in buildings. And the Israelis don't like to lose soldiers. Right. When, they, when um, Gilad Shalat was um, captured, a few I forget what, what year he was captured, <laughs> and the Israelis negotiated his release, they released something like 200, almost 300 prisoners. Right. Uh, prisoners in exchange for one soldier and that's where the other factor comes in here there's all these hostages and a lot of these hostages are dual citizens or they might even not be uh dual citizens at all there are a lot of people from thailand who were working in the kibbutzes that were taken hostage right uh, so i I've, I've been interested in the reaction um uh, I think I just saw this chart yesterday about how much there's a, how much of a generational divide there is in the U.S. Again, as far as a uh, for support for Israel. Um, so, yep. The eighty. This is from Axios.com, and there's three options: support Israel, say do nothing, you're unsure, and criticize Israel. And in the Silent and greatest generation, or let's include baby boomers and the baby boomers up. So that's birth year 1964 and earlier. In baby boomers, it's 83% uh, support Israel. And in, in the generation above that, it's which is the silent and greatest generation, it's 86%, with only 1% of the silent and greatest generation feeling critical of Israel. And if you compare that to millennials and Jay -Z, Gen Z, which is generation. You know, everyone born after 1981, it's uh, the result was 48% support Israel and 40% do nothing or unsure with with 12% critical of Israel. So it's I think it's very interesting in our news coverage here in this country um, how much of a divide it's going to be, and that you can see that with the I think there's been a lot of stories here locally about. Um, uh, pro-Palestinian protests in universities and things like that. Um, lots of, um, I don't know, that, that, there's something to be something to be said there. And I think as believers, like you already talked about, we, we get in a trap. There's a, there's a very fine line here to divide that while, yes, like you just explained very well for a while, that there are massive human atrocities that have happened and will continue to happen in this war. Um, and we referred to uh, David Jennings' excellent editorial in the Tidings Magazine where he, he made it very clear that as believers, we're not Zionists. We're not, um, we're not a Zionism today is a, is a secular or religious you know, feeling of uh, 
Israeli people. It's not, and it's it's more of a political movement um, than anything else. Um, we have a hope for the establishment of the kingdom, and we. But on the other hand, and I, I'd like us to talk about this: is is we ought, we have spent years kind of reading and teaching about all sorts of verses. I mean, Zechariah twelve three comes to my mind. Um, I feel like I could quote it, but let me pull it up so I get it right. On that day when all the nations of the earth gather against her, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone. There's, there, you know, it goes on and on. Joel 3, I was reading uh, Psalm 19 the other day. Um, we, Psalm 3 is another one. Yeah, we know that, um, you know, that, that what has been prophesied is wars like this in Israel. Um, but that, that is in no way kind of so... So in a way, it's I don't know how do, how do you how do you talk about it? How do you talk about how um, these are things we had kind of expected, but we are sad to see, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a really good point. And in terms of how we respond as believers, I, I think that's the heart of the issue. You know, all this geopolitical stuff is may be interesting, but at the end of the day, you might say, well, so what? And how does it affect me? And what should my response be? And again, I, I think, uh, you know, David Jennings article, which I believe is on the, uh, is on Facebook. So if you were to search for t- the tidings on Facebook, you would see it there. It may have been put on Instagram as well. or go to the website is worth reading because Dave tries to strike a balance between um, us being encouraged and enthusiastic that things are happening that are moving towards the establishment of the kingdom (laughs) and the uh, you know balancing that with compassion for all the people that are involved in this conflict. Right. I I think sometimes we have not done a very good job of expressing that compassion in our community. You know, we've had a lot of sort of Bible prophecy lectures that show pictures of the bear from Russia coming down and attacking in Israel and art thou come to take a spoil and all these nice pictures and and, um, PowerPoint slides of maps with arrows on them. But we've possibly neglected the human side of this. And, you know, when we look at how we want to respond to this as believers, I think we need to be aware that, yes, Israel is God's chosen people. And God will not abandon Israel. But by the same token, the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament is one of rebellion and one of turning away from God and then God bringing them back to him. We know from the passages in Romans 9 through 11 that God still considers Israel to be the apple of his eye, and that they are still special chosen people in his eyes. 
But by the same token, when Jesus is talking about his return, one of the significant passages on this, I think, is uh, Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, um, you know, this is looking at the, um, the ESV version. Uh, sorry, Luke 13. Luke 13, verses 34 to 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as the hand gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right. So, Jesus shows great love and concern for his people, but says, you know, you need to start listening to God and you need to start listening to God's prophets. And of course, Jesus was the ultimate prophet of God. And, you know, you know after he says these words, um, he then is rejected and crucified very shortly after this. In Matthew's account, those words about your your house is forsaken and left unto you are said at the end of Matthew 23, Matthew 23, verse 39, right before the Olivet Prophecy, right before he tells his four special disciples about his what it, the circumstances are going to be before he returns uh, to rule over the earth. And uh, so Jesus' compassion for his people's ungodliness or refusal to listen and his indictment of them saying, look, your house, it's no longer the house of God, the temple which they had built. And of course, God does not dwell in temples made with hands anyway, which is the point of Stephen's speech in Acts 7. But that temple and everything it represented and the people of Israel they were now the people of the Pharisees because that's who they had been subjected to and who they chose to remain subjected to. And the Pharisees had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the house was left desolate until the time when they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is saying, Israel, you need to repent. You need to become a believer in the return, the need for the return of the Messiah, for the Messiah to come and take care of all these problems. And so I think that's kind of, you know, when you say we're not Zionists, that's the part where we're not Zionists. You know, we, we recognize that Israel is God's chosen people. And that's an important principle that we teach, biblical principle that we teach. But for the most part, modern Israel is pretty ungodly right? and pretty self-reliant on their military prowess and on support from the United States. And at some point, somehow, I think that shift has to happen to provide the right circumstances for the return of Jesus. Hmm. So, you know... I don't want to risk saying what the relevance is of what's going on, what happened on October 7th in terms of Bible prophecy 
I've got to that stage in my life where making those sorts of claims is fraught with all kinds of danger. Right. Bottom line is, as one brother said, bottom line of revelation is, regardless of how confusing you might find revelation, the bottom line is Jesus wins. Right. And I think, you know, we can look back in hindsight of things that have happened and see how they fit into prophecy. But definitely we're living in times that are fraught with peril and at the same time should encourage us and strengthen our faith to recognize that everything always comes back to the Middle East, mm -hmm. the in the Middle East. Even the, from the beginning, I saw the Ukraine-Russia war, war as being tied to events in the Middle East. And that has sort of come to, starting to come to fruition as we see Russia taking sides with the Palestinians now uh, and getting involved in that. Thank you, Duncan. Um, I think we'll, we'll wrap up this discussion here. I think uh, we were right, like you said, we're right to look to the Middle East. Um, these events are um, surprising and sad, but not completely unexpected, I guess, as Bible students. And um, but, uh, but we don't know the day or the hour. Um, but like you said, we do know that in the end, Jesus wins. Yeah. And the thing for me in terms of the return of Christ is what I look forward to the most is peace and righteousness. Right. Those two things. It's not so much, you know, what are we doing in the kingdom and the beauty of the kingdom mm -hmm. and all that. I mean, that, that that's all important. But the key frustrations that I experience are injustice right. in the world and, and, and the, the horrible things that human beings do to one another. And I'm looking forward to the day when that all stops.